And good morning, everyone, or good evening, or good afternoon on this rotating globe. Happy Easter. Wherever you are on the planet listening to us, we're in something like 190 countries. That little globe at the top of the other side of midnight.com uh, website shows where all our listeners are located. And last night in the middle of the show, I noticed that India had popped up. New Delhi had popped up. Very interesting indeed. Okay, tonight is kind of complicated because one of our guests is in Rome, or actually just outside of Rome, and is not quite available yet. So what we're going to do is something that I have not uh, talked about publicly in radio for some time. We're going to go to another guest. <laughs> no, actually, we're going to. Uh, we've got so many interesting people tonight, and we even may have a surprise guest. Um, so I'm not going to you know, unveil the surprise until the third hour. So uh, that's been set up, and that's going to be kind of interesting. Last night, I was really, really intrigued with a bunch of stuff that uh, Barry Schwartz had told us. And uh, that conversation is going to kind of continue uh, at some length tonight. So without further ado, let me introduce my first guest. John R. Francis is a retired college mathematics professor. Does one ever really retire from mathematics, you know, like from the CIA, who specializes in statistics and experimental design? He also has degrees in physics and psychology. In the early 1970s, John served in the Pacific 7th Fleet as a U.S. naval officer aboard a guided missile destroyer. In 1975, John Francis had a profound near-death experience that permanently expanded his mind out of its previous, in his words, limited rational boundaries. As someone who's rational, I don't see rationality as being limited, but that's may be able to talk about that. John now views life as a highly purposeful and multidimensional evolutionary expression of one universal consciousness. His areas of metaphysical expertise include sacred geometry, near and dear to my heart, spiritual self-defense, that's curious, and heart-centered meditation. Furthermore, he has deciphered numerical codes that unlock the deepest secrets of key religious scriptures. John is the author of The Mystic Way of Radiant Love, and there's a website listed under his bio tonight where you can click in the other side of midnight.com on the guest page, scroll down to John's materials at the very bottom, and there he is. John, welcome to the other side of midnight. Thank you. Thank you for hosting this wonderful weekend so timely. I'd like to first thank Kanthea for that wonderful painting she did uh, at the top there, of you, uh, myself, and Father Tiso meditating in Tibet. I think she really, <laughs> she, she really nailed that. I, oh yeah! I think, oh, I, I, I can see you. God, that's such a likeness. Yeah. You're the one in the, you're the one in the middle. I can tell that's you. Uh, that's because of the years. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Gosh, I didn't hear stand-up comic in your in your bio. <clears throat> Well, that's, that's my secret life. I don't talk about that. Well, you sent me a bunch of talking points tonight that are kind of, I mean, talk about the long way home. If we were right. to do that, that's that's two shows in itself, John. So we don't yeah. really have time to start with Genesis. Just, but why yeah. don't you give a kind of an intro to uh, Father Tiso till he can join us from yeah. from Italy and how yeah. you got to know him and why his work in Buddhism is so apropos of tonight, Easter Sunday night, and the concept of resurrection. Okay, right. Yeah, I, I, I'll do the introduction. I, I kind of assumed I would be the warm-up act, Father uh, uh, Tiso. So that's that's great. We can talk about all the other things I shared later on. Uh, my I met Father Tiso about 15 years ago um, at a retreat outside of uh, near San Francisco, and he was doing uh, the retreat was on the uh, rainbow body phenomenon in Tibet, and I had been researching you know the inner teachings of Jesus for many years, and came to the conclusion that Jesus taught his closest disciples uh, techniques for meditation. Uh, for the transfiguration of the human body to take the next step in evolution. Okay, uh, I I'm, I'm going to have to interrupt you right there because you mentioned this term three times now. What right. the heck is a rainbow body? We're going to ask this question repeatedly tonight, folks, so just got to yeah. get used to it. What is a uh, rainbow okay. body? Okay, well, 
Uh, you know, Father Chiefs would be the great one to ask, but I would. Oh, I'll ask him. Don't worry. Okay, I will yeah, ask yeah. him. Okay. Uh, my understanding is, uh, well, one reason explanation is that when the Tibetan monks manifest this body, rainbows appear in the sky. What happens is, what you would see is, uh, after they quote unquote die, uh, many, some of them that can manifest this body are able to make their physical body actually disappear. It actually disappears and it won't leave anything but maybe their clothes or a fingernail or something. And my understanding from Boy, my talk about talk about beam me up, Scotty. Well, well, could be. Uh, my understanding of what's happening is that we have an inner spiritual body that's activated. And I'm my theory. Now, this is not, Father Tisa may have something different, but my theory is that this inner body, the spiritual body, which is the purpose, the next stage in human evolution, um, is actually able to absorb into itself the physical body. It's sort of like a butterfly being born. It, it takes in that uh, the cocoon, and perhaps it's done as a sign to the disciples um, that they achieve this, this inner radiant body. So the purpose of life is not just to disappear into an endless void, but it's to essentially manifest the next stage of human spiritual evolution. And this is not only in Tibetan Buddhism, but it's found in Taoism, and it's found in the yoga of India, this idea of the transformation of the body. St. Uh, Paul talked about that, a, a physical body being turned into a, a light body. So that's, uh, that's the significance, is that it's, um, it's part of the, the transformation of the physical body. It's not just the enlightenment of the mind, but it's uh, something that's very holistic, body, soul, and spirit transformation. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> um, so basically we're talking about uh, going from 3D reality, multidimensional. Yeah, it's the next stage in evolution. It's hyperdimensional. It's... Um, you know, there are parables that Jesus said. There's a parable of the, he said, if thine eye be single, thy body be full of light. So enlightenment really is literally having light come into the body and the soul from the mustard seed or the center point of the soul. Um, there's, and resurrection shouldn't be taken, you know, about the resurrection of the dead. It's dead, uh, we're all dead in the sense here in our human condition. That's why Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. In other words, um, this resurrection can be interpreted uh, metaphysically too, that we're coming to being really full alive in this, in this transformation. So uh, that's, what is, that's the significance of it, that it's uh, a, bottle, a total transformation. You get yes in rainbow bodies, so that's, that's one explanation. <laughs> so when you met Father Tiso, was he working on the whole rainbow body phenomenon, or was that to come in his very, oh, no, I mean, no. when, when I read his bio, you're going to, you know, people would be really impressed because he has done everything and been everywhere and is so cross religious and cultural. Um, yeah. He, he really, I'm, I'm really looking forward to our conversation this morning. He's a spiritual genius. I mean, he's like a re walking Renaissance man. He's an artist and musician. He's, uh, He's into science. Uh, he's spoken at Noetics and, and all that. So he's no, he's been doing this for I would say at least forty or 50, you know for a long, long time. He's been working on the shroud. Um, he had a spiritual teacher many, many years ago, Brother David Stentelrod, uh, Rod. Mm -hmm. and many people are familiar with him. He's very famous. Did retreats at Esalen. He sort of gave Father Tisa the commission to, why don't you look into this rainbow body phenomenon and the um, shroud. And they're both interrelated. So he's been studying this a long time ago, for a long time. He's, he's studying alchemy, and he's studied many, many different things. So um, so were you kind of triggered to look at this through meeting him, or had you independently known about this phenomenon? Because we're talking about real monks in the 20th century literally dying and then their body under guard disappearing out of sealed rooms, that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Well, no, I've been, I've been researching this for maybe 20 years before I met him since 75, when I had my, my experience, my near death experience. And, and my whole passion was during that experience. I heard the, the words of Jesus. If hang on, I, hang on, hang on. I just had a thought. 
I mean, this is real-time radio. It's a conversation. John, you've never gone through this experience that turned you from a mathematician, left-brain, rational being, U.S. Navy, etc., to someone who now sees the world in a larger scope. How did you have an out-of-body experience? Okay, in 15, very short. No, no, you got time. You got plenty of time. Okay, yeah, that's a crucial question because it's... Well, it's kind of the opening to your whole perspective on this evening's conversation. Yeah, that's where I was going to start. Okay, I was uh, going from my PhD, I was studying human memory, and I was getting ready, uh, this was a Sunday in February of 1975, getting ready to meet my committee to make my proposal of the research I was going to do. And there were two theories in in on human memory, and I had to decide which one I was going to support. And so I got into a very deep introspective state the day before, preparing for this interview. And to make a long story short, I start asking very, very deeply, what is truth? What is truth? I kept asking that inwardly, inwardly over again. And I understand now what happened. I got so absorbed into my the intellectual part of my being all the energy got drawn into into the brain and the rest of the body really sort of shut down got you know it's almost like an instant case of the flu if you want to describe what it felt like wait a minute you like forgot to eat forgot to sleep that no no well probably wasn't doing that but i think the the energy um the prana the life force sort of got sucked into my brain and sort of deprived the rest of the body this is brief you know over hours and became physically quite ill. I laid down, tried to sleep. And to make a long story short, I started praying, which I hadn't been doing in a long time. And So you relief, felt you may I, be dying. Well, I felt like I wanted to die. I got to the point where I said, I can't take this anymore. And I just let go. And what, very, very what, what, what was their pain? Yeah, pain, nausea, dizziness, sweating. You know, I lied down, tried to fall asleep. So I was lying on the bed and... Uh, the thoughts themselves were painful. It was like the mind was just um, racing, racing, and every thought was painful. And so, just the thinking process became physically painful. And so, what happened was, I discovered that there was a place inwardly where there is no thinking—a very still place within. In that crisis moment, I discovered this inner sanctuary that we all have. Now, had you meditated and, before? No, that's the whole thing. So this no is totally serendipitous. This is you, an extremist, lying there, thinking Absolutely. you're dying, wanting to, and you wanting suddenly to. found this lotus, yeah. the center of yeah. something else. Absolutely. No reading in metaphysics, no studying, no drugs, uh, nothing. Just very, you know, physics, engineering, naval officer, totally mathematics. You get the picture, right? Totally out of character. And but I let go very deeply, and what happens is I understood what the death process is. In dying, all the life force sort of gets drawn into the spine, in from the peripheral into the center, and then you can go up if, and out. They're out of the body, above the body, and then beyond, and expanded into infinite expansive consciousness. And so, did you my, do this? This this happened after hours of you know eventually yeah I did I let go in this way it's like when you let go there's a there's a you know in physics there's centripetal force and centrifugal centripetal there's a, always a force in our body pulling us towards our center and there's another force pulling us outward and normally we are pulled outward because for survival instincts you know we're always focused outward. But when you let go of that survival instinct or the will to live, the centripetal force takes over and pulls you into the center. And once you're in, in, into that center, it's like getting on um, an elevator, you know, a shaft that sort of goes right up. You know, if you don't resist, it just pulls you right up into other dimensions. And my sense of self expanded from being a body, body-oriented, limited person to unlimited pure consciousness and no separation from the rest of the universe. So was this insight gradually over this evening or was it suddenly like no, it, lightning? It happened. Once I let go, I was sort of shot out like a cannon, just boom, right out, um, right out of the cannon. Uh, there were some angelic beings that assisted me uh, <laughs> once I got to a certain level. They so you were aware me. of other consciousness. 
there were other beings surrounding me. And that's sort of what in one of my diagram shows. And what they were doing was they were beaming laser beams of love into my heart because um, I was still clinging to, um, they were still clinging to life <laughs> a little bit. So they did that and that released the fear and flooded me with love. And I was able to expand and have that experience. So I understand now it was just the purpose of that whole thing was to open me up, to get me out of my, what I call rational mind. Now I don't, there's a place for the rational mind, but the rational mind, basically my understanding of it is that it's a perfectly, for example, it's perfectly rational to say the world is flat. If you're just basing on what your senses tell you, you know, especially if you live in a desert, you know, you just look out there and everything looks flat. So the world is flat, mm -hmm. but it takes intuition, which is the intuitive mind to make that leap uh, to something beyond what the senses are telling you. You know, like Einstein and great scientists have these have intuitive leaps beyond what the physical sense data tells you. So, uh, and that opened me, my, when I heard those words on the way down, um, that I recognized the words of Christ, if then I be single, thy body be full of light. That's a quote from the Bible, and I wasn't a Bible student at the time. But in the instant that I heard those words, I knew that there was a whole metaphorical, numerical code or level to all the teachings in the Bible and the parables that I had never been taught. And... You know, that's why I never took the Bible seriously, because literally it doesn't make any much sense, you know, eating from a tree and then the whole world is condemned. You know, so it doesn't make would sense. You, would you consider this, John, your kind of B.C. and A.D., like after this experience? Absolutely. It was never, Absolutely. ever the same? Yeah, it was a resurrection in some sense. And after I had that experience, though, there was another crisis that came, because when I came back down this earth, the big, the next question was why am I here? You know, if I came from such a wonderful, expansive, loving thing, what am I doing in this body? You know, so I began an intense study for 40 years. And the conclusion I came was it wasn't a mistake. It's not punishment. It's not, you know, it's uh, a evolution. It's the infinite becoming individuated. In other words, the infinite becoming an individual, uh, an individual, aspect of the infinite. No, we're made in the image and likeness of God. So it's, it's Carl Jung called it individuation. And at the center of each one of us, there's this point of consciousness. So being thinking geometrically, think of a plane as the infinite consciousness. And a plane is made up of an infinite number of points. Each one of those points are like seeds or zero points from which a being can grow to be a holographic image, or, you know, representation of the whole. And um, so in terms of this, this catalyst for insight and exploration for the next four, 40 years, right? Mm -hmm. did you, have you come to any conclusions about, um, you know, the individualization occurs in three dimensions. When mm -hmm. we die, do we go mm -hmm. back to the formless sea or does consciousness, identity, individuality persist? Uh, yeah, there, in my experience, there was no loss of se sense of self. It was just expanded to be unlimited, right? You know, normally one has a limited sense of self based on one's name and occupation and even one's physical body. So that's the wonderful thing. The fear of death is totally removed because you realize that there's an essence that never dies. It just expands. And, um, but so the question is, why did that infinite come down and individualize in a body in the first place? And it's, mm. yeah, that was the big question. I've asked this for every spiritual teacher I've met. And surprisingly, so many of them in the East say, oh, there's no purpose to life. Uh, some say there is no God. There's no conscience, there's no purpose to life. Others say, well, the purpose is just to get back to the oneness. Well, I would always say, well, why did the oneness come down here and experience all this suffering? You know, and of course the positives too. And so I never was accepted of those, the Eastern point of view. But what intrigued me is... The Eastern point I, of view being that it's pointless. It, literally, that's an interesting word. You know, the word point. Mm. We say, what's the point of life? It's interesting that we use that word 
to me to, to, to be synonymous with meaning. Mm-hmm. So in other words, mm-hmm. the point of life, that innermost point is point is the point of life. It's that's it. It's a seed. It's, it's, Jesus used the metaphor of the mustard seed, which also is used in the Eastern scriptures. And what I did, I drilled down, I studied every spiritual tradition, but what I found is when I got down to the core of every tradition, Buddhism, Hinduism, Kabbalah, Jewish, Muslim, they all talk, or Taoism, they all talk about this creation of a spiritual body. They don't just say the purpose is to get back to the oneness, to dissolve, or there's nothing after it. They, you know, I've even heard a guru in the East say, a very enlightened one, say, after he achieved enlightenment, which were, in other words, he merged with the oneness and realized he's not just a limited human. He says, that's just the beginning of the spiritual journey. Uh, that one consciousness is, you know, like a, the metaphors of as above, so below. The metaphors and natures are very powerful. Um, there was Meister Eckhart, a middle, um, middle-aged mystic, uh, said, pear trees grow in, pear seeds grow into pear trees and God seeds grow into God. <laughs> so, uh, and if you look at all of Jesus' parables, Jesus is describing the kingdom of God as a dynamic growing process from seeds the mustard seed, you know, we don't have time. Well, can you imagine how boring life would be, any dimension you want to talk about, if we weren't growing, if we didn't have potential to be more tomorrow than we were yesterday? Absolutely. And it's, I, you know, a lot of people, I really am down on those people in these philosophies that are going around telling people there's no purpose in life, just disappear into the oneness. And that, you know, Groups that adopt that philosophy, you see how their whole world goes to, uh, you know, disrepair, so to speak. That's not the purpose of life. And it's, it's see, a lot of people stop, you know, they, they, they go into spirituality to try and relieve their suffering. And they think the whole purpose of life is just to get rid of suffering. Now, did when, you have in that, in that room there in San Francisco, I presume you were going to what, San Francisco State? No, actually, it was at a, a Catholic retreat center. Oh, okay. Near, near San Francisco. Okay. Uh, well, when you were having this death experience, because that's really what it sounds like, did you physically leave the body? Did you have those classic experiences? Oh, okay, wait, wait, hold on. Now, this this experience I had was wasn't had nothing to do with that retreat. This was forty years ago, and I was in. Uh, oh no, I wasn't connecting you meeting Father Ciso. Yeah. I was I was you know talking about this seminal life changing yeah. event. Yeah. Uh huh. So what other attributes did it, was it, was it, did you literally, could you look down at your body? Could you wonder? Okay. All right. I know what you're saying. Um, no, I didn't look down at my body. Um, I mean, every experience is different, but on the way down, it was very interesting. Uh, when I returned to my body, it felt like I was literally dropped from six feet above the bed. Oh, crash down. That was the sensation. It was like literally I was at six feet above the body, above my bed. And can you imagine just dropping from six feet into your bed? That's what it felt like. Uh, yes, I, I can imagine that. Yes, I've actually done that. <clears throat> so, and all the, and the thing is, the body was still just as much in pain as it was before. But fortunately, I fell asleep, you know, <laughs> at that point. But you know, and that was the whole thing. It, add, it it opens up so many questions and such a quest. And what happened was I went down to the library at the college because I didn't know what was going on. And I met, you know, muddled around in all the different sections. I didn't know what section to, you know, I, you know that's, a, that's a research person kicking in. I didn't lose that part of my mind. And so I finally got to the metaphysical, the Eastern teachings. And what I found was that I found books that have the whole volumes on different types of meditation techniques to induce the type of experience I had had. So I thought, thank goodness, I'm not the only one that had this. I'm not literally losing my mind. Um, and then, so the next day I had to meet my professor and I didn't want to do the type of research I was doing anymore. And oh. I suggested, to, you know, because the whole of psychology was just based on humans or machines. They're no different from rats. And I said, you know, I'd like to do something in consciousness. And when I said the word consciousness, he practically, my advisor practically fell out of his chair as if I had said a very vulgar word. 
And he said, and then he looked at me in a very disparaging way. And he says, oh, John, it sounds like you want to go into religion. Oh, you know, it's like uh -huh. he was it's totally very back. So he didn't ask, you know, what are you done with the real John Francis? <laughs> anyway, you know, he didn't say that. I mean, I didn't tell him. I knew it. I knew enough not to tell a psychologist the experience I had because mm. that's diagnosed as you know, that's part of that used to be in the handbook. People who have had about experiences or, you know, that's one of the checklists for psychosis. And uh, mm, the year such after shackles, such constraints, such strictures. Yeah. I mean, when Alex Jones yeah. talks about this as the prison planet, again, yeah. hats off to Alex because it really, in so many ways, it is. Every time you, you want to expand and grow, someone says, no, no, think small, yeah. think small. Absolutely. The year after I had my experience, Raymond Moody did all his research and near-death experiences. And I just think it was a time when for this planet to wake up and different people are having different experiences, you know, to share with us. And I haven't told anyone for about 40 years this experience. Uh, I never really told Father Tiso. Uh, I just gave him a hint about six months ago. He, I, uh, maybe it was last year. He was doing a lecture workshop, and he started talking. He, I think he asked the group, is there anyone that had a profound transformative experience? And I said, oh, maybe. The, and I raised my hand and said, yes, that was the first time I've ever hinted at it. <laughs> so if he's listening now, he's here. He's hearing all this. And I'm Well, he's going to join us. I, I see him. His little lights are twinkling there on Skype, so he'll be yeah. joining us at the bottom of the yeah. hour. But I want to – because you're a layman, you know, in, 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 in his preserve, you know, this is going to be right. a really intriguing conversation tonight right. because, you know, we, we got to Father Tiso through you. And right. it's, uh, I, I think this whole conversation of multidimensional realities, I mean, to me, the most interesting part of this is you both are intrigued with this rainbow body phenomenon. And to me, the whole idea of rainbow says spectrum says frequencies Absolutely. says more frequencies than are available in 3d reality so there there's a there's a deeper level reason for the rainbow i think and i'm going to ask you know you and i'm going to ask father tiso yeah actually most people when they hear rainbow body they will think of the seven chakras often and each chakra is usually associated with the color so uh rainbow appeared after noah's ark rainbow is very symbolic of you know, a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, something about a rainbow that just suggests um, mm. arrival at a new state of consciousness. Uh, so it's Which is very... exactly where we are now. <clears throat> we are at a new state of the, of the clock. Mm -hmm. So hold it there. When we come back, okay. we're going to be joined by Father Tiso, the aforementioned uh, polymath who is going to grace us with a really remarkable journey, another odyssey like Barry Schwartz's odyssey last night. You were on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. On our Resurrection Weekend, we shall return. First hour of the other side of midnight. 
Be sure to catch our complete live show every Saturday and Sunday night at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, for a full three hours of this kind of exploration. And be sure to visit theothersideofmidnight.com as you listen so you can follow our special Radio with Pictures guest page simultaneously. The Kinthea, our hardworking producer, specifically prepares to illustrate the topics discussed each show. Why? Because there is vital additional information on that Radio with Pictures guest page that I assure you will immeasurably enhance your understanding and enjoyment of what our guests are describing. I mean, would you rather listen to a guest talk about NASA images of ancient artifacts on Mars or simultaneously be able to follow the official NASA images showing you as you're listening the ruins. If you'd like to listen at your convenience to all our shows, including our unique radio pictures feature, please visit theothersideofmidnight.com and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. Okay, what do you get with your Club 19.5 membership besides helping the show literally stay on the air? Well, first of all, you will exclusively, this is not available to the general public, enjoy our enhanced ad-free podcast, courtesy of Chris Bell, automatically downloading all the latest The Other Side of Midnight shows directly to your favorite podcast device so you can listen when you want to. Further, as a full Club 19.5 member, you will gain exclusive access to our The Other Side of Midnight 24-7 chat server, what I can't help calling the Open Hailing Frequencies Room, which is available only to members. 24-7. Now, during the show, that's where you will find other 19.5 members and sometimes even members of the bridge crew, my guests, and even me uh, when I have time. Regardless, you can always relay live questions to me during the show just by going to the open hailing frequencies room. Of course, when we're not on the air with your 19.5 membership, you can visit our club 19.5 radio archives anytime and download all our shows directly to your computer, which will automatically provide you a screen size that allows you to really examine the remarkable images Kinthea posts for each show. Okay, <clears throat> here's where I need to get kind of super serious. Club 19.5 is how our show is currently solely supported. In my hopefully not vain attempt to keep commercials <clears throat> to a minimum, if you're concerned about keeping us on the air, if you want to hear information that has been vetted far more than perhaps any other show, the best way to ensure that is to join Club 19.5 and get your friends and family to join too. And if you don't know already, when I drop by open hailing frequencies, you can even ask me directly what the ultimate meaning is behind 19.5, literally the most exclusive club in the world. Please join me and my interesting guests on this very stream every Saturday and Sunday night at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, and be sure to come back and listen to our live three-hour shows. Thanks for listening, and now, back to the show. Welcome back on this Sunday night, Easter Sunday. One of the things I forgot to mention at the top of the show is you can all come out from your bomb shelters. The Chinese space station, the prototype space station, the nine-ton tumbling space station, successfully re-entered the atmosphere at about 8.15 Eastern time uh, over the Pacific. So as I said last night, you don't have to worry. All the hype was for nothing, and we've lost, unfortunately, a major piece of historical technology because 
the Chinese really should have tried to preserve it. Like we should have preserved Skylab. I mean, we have so little time horizon as, as a species. We don't think long term. Um, that's a conversation for a whole different show. Okay, Father Tissot has joined us on Skype, so without further ado, Francis Tissot was Associate Director of the Secretariat for Ecumenical and Interreligious Affairs of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops from 2004 to 2009, where he served as liaison to Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, the Sikhs, and traditional religions, as well as the Reformed Confessions. Before coming to UCSB, uh, Father Tiso was assigned to the Archdiocese of San Francisco, where he served as parochial vicar of St. Thomas More Church and chaplain at San Francisco State University and the University of California Medical School. He was also visiting professor in the Archdiocesan School of Pastoral Leadership, where he taught courses in foundational theology and served as parochial vicar in Eureka, California, and in Mill Valley, California, both places I know where. Anyway, <clears throat> a New York native, Father Tiso holds the A.B. in Medieval Institute Studies from Cornell University. He earned a Master of Divinity degree, cum laude, at Harvard, and holds a doctorate from Columbia University and Union Theological Seminary, where his specialization was Buddhist studies. Father Tiso has translated several early biographies of the Tibetan yogi and poet Milapera, and for his dissertation on sanctity in Indo-Tibetan Buddhism. He has led research expeditions in South Asia, Tibet, and the Far East, and his teaching interests include Christian theology, history of religions, spirituality, ecumenism, and interreligious dialogue. And I could go on for a long time, because his bio is very long, but in, instead of doing that, why don't we introduce Father Tiso directly? Father, welcome to the other side of midnight. Uh, good to hear your voice. Thank you very much for introducing me with that uh, little bio. <laughs> That's great. Uh, can you hear me okay? If you can get just a little closer to your mic. I will. All right. How's this? Better. Better. Okay. Very good. Yeah, I'm here in uh, Isernia, uh, up in my little house in Colicroce. Uh, it's uh, sunrise here, so uh, it's another world. I imagine. Uh, just got back from celebrating the Triduum in my mother's hometown of Calitri, which is uh, has got lots of ancient traditions where the timeline is long rather than uh, short, as you were mentioning a, a moment ago. Let me jump right in and ask you about this rainbow body business, because when I saw the title of your book and the connection to resurrection, and obviously when you think of the word, you think of Jesus of Nazareth, etc., and it is Easter Sunday evening here, still in the United States. Talk, talk about this whole rainbow body phenomenon, because I was not aware, as I'm sure most people aren't aware, that we have genuine, could I use the term miracles occurring in the landscape in the 20th and 21st century, and most people aren't aware? Yeah, well, of course, uh, uh, miracles are talked about a lot in some circles, but in other circles, of course, they're uh, regarded as symbolic or, you know, uh, figment of the imagination. Uh, but certainly in this case, uh, the study that I did, uh, there is this Kenpo Ache, who was a very distinguished and very uh, highly regarded uh, Lama in Eastern Tibet, who had studied with both the Gelugpa school and the Nyingma school, the two uh, very different approaches to Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, he had integrated both traditions, and then when he passed away in 1998, uh, his disciples immediately noticed his flesh uh, tone changing. Uh, his skin, and he was over 82, his skin began to become like that of a child, and uh, there was a certain luminosity. And already there had been mysterious rainbows appearing over his hermitage. And then over the course of the next uh, eight days, his body, which had been placed... Uh, under a cloth, under his yellow monastic cloak uh, on his bed, the body gradually diminished, and when they removed the cloak, uh, it had disappeared. So, the, and even Matthew Kapstein, one of the most distinguished uh, scholars of Tibetan Buddhism, speaks of this as, well, how can we deny the possibility of a miracle? Uh, he, he wrote a couple of uh, couple of lines about this particular episode. Uh, what I did is I went into the into it and I, I interviewed people who were there, eyewitnesses. 
So there's a great deal that I could say about this. I'm not sure how far we want to go with that. Well, I mean, this is kind of like the the, 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 the the keynote of tonight's program, because last night we were mm-hmm. talking about the Shroud. We'll get to the Shroud, you know, and, and mm-hmm. your conversancy with it a bit later on. But I'm really intrigued with the idea, because, of course, as a Westerner, the first thing you think is, and this is probably going to sound very cynical, someone spirited his body away and that kind of thing, okay? But you spent how many years really digging into this with expeditions up to 14, 15,000 feet, talking to people who were, you know, around this phenomenon? So you, <clears throat> excuse me, you really know that this happened. Yeah, in this case, you know, uh, I interviewed quite a few people. And uh, if you, if, you know, people are willing to, to have the patience to read the book, you can see that not all Tibetans agree that this phenomenon actually occurs. However, I think in the book, uh, one of the most interesting episodes is, aside from the interviews, which are very uh, uh, structured and people are answering questions and they have a tendency to answer the questions, you know, in a very uh, almost mechanical way. And in fact, I wish that I had the opportunity and perhaps someday I will have the opportunity to go back and talk to them again and reflect with them. But uh, there is one interview in the book uh, with the head of the Bunho order, Lopontenzin Namdak in Kathmandu. And while we were interviewing him, a telephone call comes in from Tibet. And uh, there is a great deal of distress going on because apparently a Bunho monk, who is also very highly regarded, passed away. Uh, his body began to manifest uh, uh, paranormal indications, light and so forth, rainbows. And his, his nephew began to invite journalists in to report on this and to take photographs and so on and so forth. Mm. Uh, now, this excited Now, what year me. was this, Father? What year? This is, this is about uh, 2001. Okay. okay. In February of 2001. So there we are. And, uh, and this is all going on. And the authorities were alerted. They came in, they arrested the nephew, and the whole thing became quite an embarrassment. And the shrinkage stopped as well. Oh. So, uh, you know, in, the, in, in one of the criteria that we use for studying historical fragments in the gospel narratives is, quote, embarrassment. Right. That that authenticity is at least somewhat indicated when the gospel narrative recounts an episode that might be thought to be embarrassing or uh, diminishing of somebody's dignity. Now, in this case here, you have a perfect example of that, uh, an embarrassing situation that nevertheless confirms the fact that something was going on. All right. That something really was happening. This is a, a monk at Topten Rakshi, I think his name was. And uh, so this really was going on. Something was happening and it caused a stir and then it stopped happening. Whereas in the case of Kenpo Acha, we have multiple eyewitnesses of rainbows, an extraordinary uh, explosion of light in, uh, in the atmosphere. Uh, a great deal was going on, music, perfumes, uh, people praying, and so on and so forth. And the diminishing of the body took place under a cloth, but it was visible to the close disciples who were keeping guard. Uh, this, uh, this happened. And, and I visited that hermitage in the year 2000 with a team of uh, associates, including a translator and uh, some other friends, and we did interview the, uh, the eyewitnesses. And then I interviewed two more eye- eyewitnesses in India the following year. So, uh, so there's a lot of things going on. Then I interviewed many, many other lamas and uh, practitioners uh, in, South, in South India and also in California. So I uh, did a lot of work on it. But then I tried to go back and figure out, you know, well, all right, so uh, what are the practices that are involved here and uh, what's that history all about? And that's where the book gets very, very dense. Hmm. <laughs> so we can look at that too. Well, well, I do want to look at that tonight, and I'm, I'm hoping you can undensify it for us. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, because the idea is that it, that it is possible co- to connect with the resurrection, but via a tradition, a strand of Christian uh, uh, spirituality that crossed Central Asia during the 7th and 8th centuries uh, and which uh, did connect with Buddhism. So this is the amazing thing is that hardly anybody knows about this stuff and only a small group of specialists have even bothered to study the texts that demonstrate that there was this connection uh, 
Hmm. Uh, but it's interesting that there are, there's an Italian scholar, Matteo Nicolini Zani, who published a wonderful book with a translation of the Chinese Buddhist texts that were found in the oasis of Dunhuang. Perhaps you've heard of this, or someone on some shows uh, on the radio may have mentioned the Dunhuang Cache. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of texts found in a cave in northwestern China at the oasis of Dunhuang. Uh, and also nearby at Turfan, where uh, they, you know, it's mostly Buddhist texts. There were many Manichaean texts, but unfortunately the Manichaean texts were ruined by uh, water infiltrations. But there was a handful of Christian Chinese texts, and those were studied mostly by the Japanese in the 1920s and 30s. And uh, but now uh, we have an Italian translation, and in my book I present an English translation based on the Italian and some other things that I know about that the author didn't know about. And uh, it's uh, it's very very interesting to see how close the Christians and the Buddhists had become in China in the eighth century, which is exactly the century of uh, Tibetan Buddhism becoming the uh, state religion of Tibet. Uh, in, and there are many connections there between the attitudes of the Chinese Christians and their spiritual methods and the Buddhist methods. In fact, uh, the Buddhists who worked with the Christians in China in the Tang Dynasty were criticized by the other Buddhists for uh, you know, mixing up Buddhism and Christianity. Mm. And this, this was a problem that went on uh, into the ninth century when finally the, uh, the Tang Dynasty turned against Buddhism shut down the Buddhist monasteries, melted down the bronze statues, and condemned Christians, Manichaeans, and Buddhists as a foreign religion, a group of foreign religions that were not wanted in China. And there was a, a quite a persecution which uh, put a dent in all, in all three religions in China. Uh, so, but the, the beauty of this, for example, the, the one that I'm talking about now, in, in the history of ideas, we rarely have a text written by the author. Right? right? We always have text copied by somebody else. Mm -hmm. But in the case of the Christian Chinese documents, we actually have uh, a uh, block of stone about nine or ten feet high, you know, that black uh, Chinese schist. And it's written in Chinese and Syriac, all right? In other words, the Christian version of Aramaic. Ah. And this this thing has the entire text written out. Kind of like a religious Rosetta Stone. Exactly, and it's <laughs> and it's right there. You know, it still exists. It was found in 1623. Uh, it has been translated a number of times. It is the history of the Christian Church in China, written by a what's called a core episcopus, that is a sort of a, a minor bishop. Uh, in the church, in the Syro-Oriental Church, sometimes called the Nestorian Church, which is a misnomer, but the Syro-Oriental Church, which went from Baghdad across Central Asia to all the great sites along the Silk Road and ended up in Tang, China in the 640s. And then uh, the, the author, his name is Jingjing, writes about it and tells who were the major players in this church and what they did and what their teachings were and all that. And then the whole document is signed by his colleagues in Syriac, all right, in car carved into the stone. So it's a pretty amazing document. You very rarely have an original, original, original like that. Wow. And then in the Dunhuang documents, we have something called the, the Book on the Realization of Peace and Joy by the very same Jingjing. No, it's not sign, but uh, you can tell that it's changing by the quality of the Chinese. It's very, very fine uh, Tang Dynasty classical Chinese. So, right, so here you have this beautiful document in which Jesus is explaining to none other than Simon Peter the teachings of Mahayana Buddhism. <laughs> it's really? Just amazing. Yes, yes. This is Jesus is explaining to, in other words, to the Christians, all right, well, here we are in China. Now, we've got to know something about Buddhism. So this is this, and this is that. You know, and he explains Vipassana and Shamatha. He explains emptiness. He explains uh, also Wu Wei, the non-action doctrine of the Taoists. I mean, it's an amazing document, and there are wonderful parables and tales in there written in this uh, beautiful Chinese and uh, and that is one of the Dunhuang documents, and uh, and it is translated and commented in my book. And uh, my my friend uh, Matteo Nicolini-Zani, who's a monk in northern Italy, was very very grateful that I I began the theological unpacking of the meaning of this text 
Uh, and so that's, the, I, of course, writing in English. He's written in Italian. And uh, we're trying to make some progress on understanding this because up till now, most of the commentators on this text have said, well, this shows that the Chinese Christians had um, kind of given up their Christianity and become more Buddhist than Christian. But if you really read the text carefully and you, and you know behind this text what the spiritual teachings of the Syro-Oriental Church were, you can see that this is a very authentic representation of a particular strand of contemplative mystical Christianity, okay? And that enables and shows us that the Syro-Oriental Christians were ready for this encounter with the Buddhists, and in fact, there was mutual influence. So let me, let me go back one, one, one page here. Uh, when were mm -hmm. these books and texts, and I presume they also were scrolls and whatever, hidden in this cave to preserve them? Okay, the date of the sealing of the caves is around uh, the beginning of the 11th century, around the year 1020, something like that. The text itself, though, is written in the 780s, which must have been an amazing <laughs> decade in the, in the Tang capital of Xi'an. Um, so it, uh, the texts were written in a luxurious calligraphic style on very fine materials. So and preserved for hundreds of years before they were sequestered away. Uh, right. And then uh, they were put in the cave and then the cave wasn't opened until about 100 years ago. Why were uh, they why were they why were they put in this cave? Was this because of the Chinese political change of, of uh, government perceptions? No one knows. Uh, this is the beginning of the 11th century. So it's the uh, beginning of the Song Dynasty. And uh, no one knows why the caves were sealed up, but it may have been in a period in which that part of the Chinese empire was under military stress. Uh, from invaders. And so they just withdrew from that area. And the Buddhist monks who were in charge of the caves just sealed everything up. And what uh, incredible, what incredible good fortune. I mean, it's kind of like uh, having, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls in perfect condition, that kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. In this case, uh, many of the, of the materials uh, were in excellent condition. By the way, also in those caves, uh, were found important Tibetan documents, including chronicles, histories, uh, magical texts, uh, tantric texts, and Dzogchen texts. And they also found an amulet or a formula of, of protection in which Jesus, Shakyamuni Buddha, and Vajrapani are invoked as a protection against demonic forces. All right, Jesus the Messiah, along with Buddha and uh, Bhadrapani. So there's already uh, evidence there of syncretism, and this is an actual text. This is not just something that someone is saying, but the, the text is there, and uh, Sam Van Shaikh has published it on his uh, website, earlytibet.com. And you say it was only found about 100 years ago. Right, Oral Stein, you know, that, that whole group, the, the French and German uh, expeditions to Central Asia that uh, excavated and uh, distributed those texts to different libraries. So there's some in uh, the, the Paul Pelliot collection in Paris, and then there's the British uh, Library collection and a few others. Because there is, of course, the story that during the uh, 30s, uh, the Abenabi and Hitler and those guys sent teams to Tibet and brought, you know, not wagon trains, but mules loaded with priceless original manuscripts back to Berlin. And I'm intrigued that these these obvious copies, you know, did not suffer that. They 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 remained in Tibet. No, no, these were brought back. I, I think that's what you're referring to. That uh, I remember, Paul Pelio is the French guy, and Oral Stein was the German guy. But these are around 1912. Okay, okay. They were there, so it was before Hitler, and uh, and these uh, these materials were brought back to uh, to Berlin, to Paris, and to London, and uh, and have been studied in bits and pieces over the, over the last hundred years. But it's now with a great interest in the West in Dzogchen, for example, uh, people are are uh, doing a lot of work on the. Uh, on the Tibetan Buddhist texts there. One of the things that's really important and that I uh, discuss in, in both the, the Rainbow Body book and in my Milarepa book, uh, the fact that Tibetan history has been revised dramatically by the discovery of the early Tibetan chronicles and other materials that were found in the, in the Dunhuang caves. See, this was the northernmost extent of the Tibetan empire. 
So uh, at the crossroads between the Silk Road leading to the Middle East, the Chinese Empire and the Tibetan Empire, way up north there is that Dunhuang outpost where a lot of material uh, was uh, collected you know, by the administration, both the Tibetan administration and also the Chinese administration and the changing of the guard. And so you have a, a tremendous collection there. It, was, uh, it is a huge find and an extremely important one for the history of Asia. Just to so, make a kind of a connection, <clears throat> I mean, I'm really sad tonight that the Chinese let their first space station just crash into the Pacific <laughs> because <laughs> the culture is about preservation. This whole story, the last half hour, has been about mm. people putting themselves in line to preserve the past for the future. And why is that disappearing in Chinese culture right now? I'm really mystified. Thoughts? <sighs> Uh, yeah, this is a whole uh, topic because the, the idea of progress uh, is, in a certain sense, a uh, monkey on our backs. Uh, this is the, the idea of progress uh, being that you jettison the past, right? that you separate yourself from the past, that you actually feel alienation from the past. It's not just a Chinese problem, let's face it. I mean, it's a Western problem, the Western uh, problem that was invented mainly to separate secular European culture from its Christian past, okay? And the idea was to designate that Christian past as the past, something that you studied in a book, but that you didn't actually practice, and, that, and you certainly did everything in your power. And if you study the history of, of European uh, governments over the past 300 years, you see that everything possible was done to diminish and, if possible, destroy uh, human continuity. Right? They preserved the books, all right? but they uh, did not want the monasteries to exist. All right? The monasteries were destroyed. Right? The lands of the monasteries were expropriated in one country after another, starting with Henry VIII. Okay? Because to make progress, you couldn't have those so-called obscuritanists. Right? You know, and, and the obscuritanist thesis is, is a very powerful one. You know, the idea that religious people are backward. Spiritual people don't know what they're talking about. They make things up to defend themselves. And, and so progress is made through science. But then let's look honestly at science. Right? Science is a cultural product. It's a product of a decision that was made to jettison spirituality as part of the past. All right? So then you end up with science. Okay, well, science makes wonderful progress, but also there are a lot of uh, byproducts. And I think probably... You know, I don't want to bash science too much because I love science and I, I have my own laboratory. I do chemistry. I do things. I studied uh, going way back to the 60s. I studied neuroscience when I was in high school. I studied um, biochemistry when I was in high school and first years of college. So I, I love science. But the cultural aspects of science have often been extremely destructive and limiting. All right. And limiting. And, you you know, just earlier with John Francis, you were talking about the, the limits of psychology. Mm. You know, that's some of the uh, uh, behaviorist uh, approaches in, in psychology have been uh, reductionist. They've reduced the human being to a mechanism, right, which, of course, doesn't correspond to uh, any of the discoveries of the great spiritual traditions. All right, so John Francis and I, of course, have been uh, researching this for decades on, uh, on the basis of our own personal experiences and also talking with uh, people who have uh, dedicated their lives to the contemplative journey. And uh, the contemplative journey is a very, very different uh, kind of reality uh, in, in the human species, very different from uh, a scientific reductionist approach. Uh, now we're trying to find a way to uh, dialogue. You know, the mind and life people are trying to do a dialogue between contemplative practice and neuroscience. And uh, I suspect that some progress will occur because actually, you know, when you think about the rainbow body phenomenon, all right, how can you possibly explain, all right, in scientific terms, or even in mystical terms, even in contemplative terms, how do you explain that a physical body is going to dissolve into light of the rainbow colors and all of this. And the, the, the bridge between material and luminous is, is a very long one. You know, so you have to, and nobody has, as far as I have yet been able to discover, has filled up, has completely built up that bridge, at least theoretically, in a way that could be understood by Western science. 
However, there are people apparently who have done something there. Now, in in our Central Asian uh, Sierra Oriental Christians, they report various physical phenomena that correspond to long years of meditation practice, okay? And they are, as far as I can tell, the earliest actual documents that show us that somebody is attaining the body of light during meditation and prayer, okay? And this goes way back. This goes because the Syro-Oriental Christians were the faithful transmitters of the teachings of the Desert Fathers in Egypt. All right, so so that here we are talking about sixth, seventh, eighth century in Central Asia, but we're going back to the fourth century in Egypt, and they brought forward, they they translated from Greek into Syriac, all right, and then carried out the program. All right, uh, I'll tell you what, they, hold it there, Father. We're at the top sure. of the hour. We're going to take a short break. My guest this morning, I have two guests this morning, and there are surprises joining us in the third hour. Father Francis Tissot and John Francis. We have a number of Francis tonight. We're going to even talk about uh, Pope Francis. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. When we come back, we're going to kind of move the conversation from the rainbow body and the idea of Christ's resurrection. What's the connection between the two? And can one use one to evaluate the other? I have the perfect person to ask when we return. Club 19.5ers, this is Chris, your friendly neighborhood other side of the midnight podcast creator. I wanted to pop in right quick to tell you about the new club perk we just set up this week. We've got a new live chat server. We set up our very own Discord chat server this week so all of you can get together and chat with each other and to Richard and the Bridge Crew. What I hope you will enjoy and take advantage of is the fact that now you will be able to ask your questions of the guest during the live show if you don't want to call in. I know I've had a question or two in the past, and well, if I made it up to the 2 a.m. hour, I just didn't want to be on the radio since I was shy. So we have a chat channel just for guest questions. And if you find it hard to stay up at all for the show, but have a question you would like asked, then go ahead and post it to the channel. Questions will be read out to the guest for you, so you will get your answer as time permits. You're welcome to join the chat server at any time. To find the link to the server, please go to theothersideofmidnight.com and click on the Club 19.5 Member Benefits link in the left column. Be sure to log in first. You'll find the link to the chat server information page there. It's important that you follow the directions on that page so I'll be able to get you into the Club 19.5 group as soon as possible. You see, only Club 19.5 members have access to your special chat channels, so I will be verifying everyone that comes in to be sure you are a member. Otherwise, you'll get stuck in the Red Shirts group, and we all know what happens to the Red Shirts in Star Trek, don't we? So don't be a Red Shirt. The chat server runs on anything. If you're connected to the internet, you can access the chat server. So join us all in the server, and let's get the other side of Midnight Community together and chat. But wait, you say you aren't a member of Club 19.5? No problem. Click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left column on the other side of midnight.com. And we'll see you there.
Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll have access to a private chat server that member used to chat about the show during the show, and you will have a direct channel to post a question that will be read on the air to the guest. And you'll have a place to post questions during our open hailing frequencies. We realize that not everyone wants to call in live, and this gives you an easy way to participate in a live show without having to participate. Club 19.5 members can use this private chat to talk about the shows, ask questions, suggest new guests, and I may even pop on from time to time to answer specific questions. Also, the entire Bridge crew is in these participating chat channels, so you can interact with them as well. You'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward, and boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Mm-hmm.